NBC Sports presents the third AFL-NFL World Championship game, the Super Bowl. The American Football League champions, the New York Jets, versus the National Football League champions, the Baltimore Colts. From the Orange Bowl in Miami, Florida, the city of Miami hosts for this Super Bowl game, and a wonderful host it's been. The temperature right now is 72 degrees. The wind is going to be a factor here. It's gusty now, 15 miles an hour, and we have a 20% chance of rain. It rained last night hard for several hours. The field was covered, though, and appears to be in very good shape. And they could have sold 150,000 tickets for this game. Tickets have never been more scarce than they were here in Miami for the third Super Bowl game. I'm Kurt Gowdy. I'm going to call the play-by-play -play for you. Analyzing the game will be Kyle Rote and Aldi Rogatis. They were both National Football League stars, and also they followed the AFL this season on television and NBC, so they know both leagues very well. Also, Jim Simpson is going to be with us, and he'll be roaming the field for some interesting interviews. Well, you've all read and heard all kinds of pregame dope during the week. I think one big sidelight has been Joe Namath. Joe Namath, of course, is the man that the Colts have to stop. If Namath has a good day, the Jets are usually good. If he doesn't, they have trouble. But Namath has not been bashful this week. He's come down here to, uh, to uh, Miami, and he has said that the Jets are going to win. He doesn't even predict it. He says, I guarantee a Jet victory. He has downgraded the opponent, the quarterback, Earl Morrow. And this is supposed to now give Baltimore even more of an incentive, and they say that it has added maybe a two-touchdown edge to the Colts. We'll see how it all comes out. Joe Namath has been on the spot, but he's even more on the spot now. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, what's new? How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and this is indeed Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast journey each and every week into what used to be in professional sports. Uh, last week's uh, uh, Discussion was uh, uh, really interesting and in that we decided that uh, we would stay sort of in the New York metropolitan area this week uh, as we segue from last week's show uh, about uh, an interesting slice of life during the uh, the times of Shea Stadium in, uh, in New York, Flushing uh, slash Queens, to be uh, exact. And uh, we thought we'd uh, go this week into uh, one of those teams. Uh, that called Shea Stadium home for uh, most of its, uh, actually all of its life. Uh, no, not the uh, uh, beloved uh, baseball uh, New York Mets, but the Jets, the football New York Jets uh, of uh, the AFL, and then obviously, of course, later the uh, the NFL. And um, as is the uh, want on this show, we try to focus on uh, teams and leagues no longer with us or uh, previous incarnations of such. And uh, the AFL version of the New York Jets uh, is a topic we really have not uh, gone too deeply into. Uh, but uh, a new book uh, is out that gives us a, a pretty darn good excuse uh, to do so. Uh, our guest is uh, Bob Letterer, and he is the author of uh, the brand new book uh, published by Day Street imprint of uh, William Morrow, and it's called Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. And uh, the thesis of the book and our conversation uh, is an interesting one, right? So as you heard in this little uh uh, a snippet uh, featuring Kirk Gowdy. Uh, that was, of course, the intro uh, to the uh, most famous uh, and uh, now legendary Super Bowl III 
that uh, was played in uh, the Orange Bowl uh, in Miami on January 12, 1969, uh, between the New York uh, Jets of the AFL, the AFL champions, uh, and the uh, the Baltimore Colts of the NFL, the NFL champions. And as you may remember, those first three years of the not fully uh, merged uh, leagues, right? This uh, Super Bowl, which wasn't even coined the Super Bowl until really uh, the this third one, although it may have been uh, referenced uh, informally uh, as such uh, prior, um, was uh, you know designed essentially to be sort of the last uh, final game between the two separate leagues before the the uh, the full on merger uh, uh, afterwards, and. Um, you know, as uh, uh, as was sort of uh, des- described, not only in the in the lead up, right? So Joe Namath uh, taking his uh, uh, New York Jets team uh, into uh, the lion's den, if you will, of the Orange Bowl. Uh, they were not expected to to be even competitive, let alone win this game. And I think a lot of people, you know, who lived through it, sort of remember the fact that the Jets uh, were just gigantic underdogs. I mean, I think the 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 line, the betting line, was the Colts by eighteen. Uh, going into this game, and as you remember in our previous conversations uh, around Baltimore Colts of the NFL of that time, uh, you know they had just pasted uh, their way that they pasted the, uh, the the Cleveland Browns uh, in the NFL championship game just two weeks prior, and they were a juggernaut, right? With the, not only Earl Marl, but of course Johnny Unitas, and and uh, you know they were quite something. The Colts were, and you know, and there was this also lingering uh, doubt about sort of the uh, the viability. And/or the uh, the credibility and the competitiveness of of the AFL and the teams in general, and this was, you know, as we're going to hear in our conversation with Bob in a few minutes, uh, a, a pivotal game. Uh, it wound up becoming uh, quite definitional uh, around uh, uh, the AFL, its value, uh, and frankly, what the NFL became after uh, the full-on merger uh, that happened after this game. Uh, Super Bowl three and 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 a lot of the conversation uh, we're going to be talking about today is is not just the obvious stuff about Joe Namath and that's clearly the easy headline for most of the memories of this New York Jets team the only by the way championship version uh, the Jets uh, experienced of course which every New York Jet fan will uh, will tell you and lament about uh, as uh, the uh, actual date of fifty years now since the Jets won a championship. Uh, it is a sorry state of affairs for lots of different reasons uh, for another conversation, of course. But, you know, I think it is uh, a really interesting slice that uh, Bob is focused on. You know, it wasn't just Joe Namath. Of course, he the marquee name, uh, uh, the, the superior talent, uh, a lot of the excitement around the team, no doubt. But let's be honest, you know, one person does not a team make. And uh, as we'll hear in this conversation, uh, Bob uh, got the opportunity to talk with most of uh, the folks that were uh, part of this team. And by the way, not just the 1968-69 team that won the, the Super Bowl, but but frankly, some of the uh, the components and the cogs and the pieces uh, that constituted and made up this team uh, as it emerged from its original form in the AFL, that, it, that being the New York Titans. Uh, a previous episode there, you can look that one up too um, with our friend Bill Reisick. Uh, but, uh, you know, becoming the Jets uh, and then uh, what uh, became... Ultimately, uh, despite the fact them being huge underdogs, the ultimate champion of the national, uh, well, the combined NFL and AFL Super Bowl three champions. That's our conversation this week. It's a very interesting one, a subtle one at that. Uh, And if you're a New York Jets fan, uh, you remember sort of the days of of that uh, dramatic uh, and unexpected 
uh, quote unquote world championship. You will enjoy this conversation as I did uh, with our guest, Bob Letterer, coming up in just a couple of seconds. All right, let's get a couple of promotional things out of the way uh, quickly and uh, smoothly, uh, because without them, without our sponsors, uh, this show doesn't exist. And uh, we appreciate you considering and hopefully making a purchase or two uh, from our our, uh, our great sponsors to keep us going. Will you please? Thank you so much. Oldschoolshirts.com is a good place to start. Oldschoolshirts.com has a bevy of uh, great uh, uh, distressed uh, T-shirts, high quality stuff. I mean, there are tons of crappy shirts out there on the, in the Internet uh, uh, featuring old logos and stuff. But this this ain't one of them. Oldschoolshirts.com. Thank you. Uh, is uh, is a, a, a bastion of high quality. Uh, they are uh, lovingly made. They are uh, very interested in the history uh, of a lot of these teams and leagues. And by the way, it's not just uh, uh, sports franchises uh, and leagues that uh, are no longer with us or previous incarnated, but it's also really cool stuff like old uh, radio uh, station logos and, and call letters and uh, all other kinds of sort of pop culture things and malls and amusement parks, all that kind of stuff. Oldschoolshirts.com, and they're making all kinds of new ones all the time. So give them a try. And uh, when you go there, please indeed use your promo code GOODSEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases. That's oldschoolshirts.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 10% off. Sportshistorycollectibles.com is an awesome place to go as well. Uh, And that is a place where memorabilia of all kinds of teams and leagues no longer with us. Frankly, some of them are still with us, but in previous incarnations and whatnot. And uh, Dean Mitchell uh, and friends out in San Diego are uh, replacing or putting new stuff up there all the time. Uh, very uh, uh, well-photographed versions of all these things that you can sort of see and get a real good handle on on what you're uh, you're buying. Uh, and uh, you're going to find yourself uh, sucking a lot of time out of your day, uh, as I do often by uh, by going through all those cool things and and then considering, I think, of what, the kind of things you might want to purchase, right? Maybe it's from uh, the AFL. Maybe it's from, uh, you know, various uh, soccer or baseball or basketball or hockey or golf or whatever. It's It's all there. Uh, and, and an amazing array of stuff at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And when you finally decide that uh, there is something that you absolutely must have, uh, and I, I think it's a matter of when, not if, uh, you want to use a promo code there, and that's good seats. The promo code good seats will get you 15% off all of your purchases uh, early and often at sportshistorycollectibles.com. Again, promo code good seats for 15% off all of your purchases there. Okay. And now, last but not least, uh, our friends at 503 Sports in Portland, Oregon, the beautiful Pacific Northwest of our great country. 503 Sports, the king of throwbacks. Uh, and the uh, actual website is 503-sports.com or 503-sports.com if you're a a, a, a persnickety uh, Webster's uh, uh, English uh, a, a dictionary devotee. And at 503 Sports, you're going to find um, not only some great uh, lovingly crafted T-shirts uh, with the logos and stuff of teams and leagues that you may remember and just maybe have or perhaps have just forgotten, but also some very uh, awesome uh, and and handcrafted limited edition throwback uniforms uh, that are uh, painstakingly put together. Uh, they make them only in very small batches. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, for teams and leagues uh, no longer with us. And if you really want to show your your, your sports fandom, uh, and really stand out. I mean, if you want that old XFL jersey, if you're looking to cre- uh, create a little stir with an old WFL, World Football League jersey, uh, perhaps something from the World League of American Football to confound your friends and say, 
you know, have them say, what the hell is that and where that come from? And there was a team in Sacramento called The Surge. What are you talking about? All that stuff and more is uh, yours to find. And frankly, you can even suggest some ideas. They are very uh, open to your suggestions. And that's at 503 Sports. That's 503 dash or hyphen sports.com. And of course, we've got a promo code for you there. That's seats. Seats. Yes, that's the promo code at 503 Sports. Again, it's 503 hyphen or dash sports.com. Use that promo code seats and get 10% off all of your purchases there as well. Please indeed visit them early and often, uh, not just them, but uh, all of our great sponsors. And we thank you for doing so tremendously. All right, let's get to our chat. A very interesting chat. I learned a ton uh, in this conversation, as I often do, but perhaps a little bit more than than, than normal. Uh, and, uh, and I think you're going to find it uh, intriguing as well. Bob Letterer is our guest, our conversation about the uh, AFL version of the, uh, the New York Jets uh, and their lead up into the, uh, the surprising Super Bowl III uh, championship uh, coming right up. There's no question uh, that the Jets, right, uh, and having grown up in the New York metropolitan area, uh, I would call myself more of a Giants fan, but my first ever football game was at a Jet game at Shea Stadium. Uh, again, who knows why? Uh, glutton for punishment, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but it's it's clear that the Jets, right? You know, which we whom we know and and partially love today, uh, you know, got their start in the AFL. And uh, a lot of your book centers around uh, you know the year and the the success of the team. Uh, in 1968, 1969, culminating in that Super Bowl three championship. Um, but I, I, I think a lot of people in today's generation sort of uh, it's completely lost on them, whether, you know, understanding the dynamics of the Super Bowl. And and, and they have, you know, frankly, I had to add the last chapter. Why it changed everything, because my publisher came up with the title for the book. This I, I had Beyond Broadway Joe. They insisted on the Super Bowl team that changed football. And I had told them that verbally, but I had no chapter about that. And so the last chapter in the book is about that. And that probably is the most important um, part of the book, um, especially for fans today who, if you're not 60 years old, just don't know what that what that game did after it was over. It completely, it completely, I mean, are we, are we taping now or, or yeah. what are we doing? Yeah, we like to start in Medias Res. So okay, I mean, just to give you an example, Jerry Philbin and Bob Talamini, two of the really good players on the Jets, both told me in my interviews with them that they had heard rumblings that um, the uh, NFL was not going to accept all the AFL teams, despite the merger agreement. If the Jets got blown out like Oakland and Kansas City had been. And the two worst franchises easily back then were the Boston Patriots and the Denver Broncos. So imagine if the leagues had merged, quote unquote, and the Patriots and the Broncos didn't exist today. You know, they might have put another team in Boston later and another team in Denver later. Who knows? You know, there's been a lot of franchise shifts in other sports, but. Where would Tom Brady be today? And where would John Elway have played his football for all the years he played? I mean, and no fan today is at all in touch with that. I mean, I wasn't until I, you know, did this interview. In fact, I talked to some people from the Patriots franchise back then. They knew nothing about it. And yet 
you know, Philbin was telling me, he was insistent that he was hearing this in the locker room in the two weeks before Super Bowl three was played. And um, I mean, that's one thing. And then the NFL wanted to take the AFL teams even after, excuse me, but before Super Bowl three was played. And Pete Rozelle was going to take the 10 AFL teams or eight AFL teams or whatever number they were going to take in. And they were going to put them in the National Football League. And the Jets were going to be in the Giants division. And the 49ers were going to be in the same division with the Raiders. And the Oilers were going to be in the same division with the Dallas Cowboys, etc. Okay? So we would not have an AFC today. And we would not have a Super Bowl. Because they had decided that the AFL teams were so pathetic that there was no point in having this big Super Bowl game, which was always going to be a rout. And so they were going to they were going to take the AFL teams that made the playoffs, four of them, okay, and um, they were going to mix them with the NFL teams. And the idea was they would eliminate the AFL teams so that the championship game would end up being an NFL team against another NFL team. That was the plan. Yeah, that's interesting because um, uh, you know, and, and it really came came to light in our our conversation a couple of weeks back with uh, Jack Gilden, who wrote to Collision of Wills, which essentially is sort of the, you know, uh, the, the, the sort of main meat, I guess, of uh, the '60s and the Baltimore Colts, right? And oh, yeah, and and it's it's interesting, and you know, I'm, uh, people of a certain generation, right? They don't sort of recognize all this, but you know, to your point, right? Those first two Super Bowls, right, were really no contest and it was sort yeah, of after halftime there were complete mismatches no and 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 in the fact that and and how the Colts had won the NFL championship in 68 leading into what then was going to be the uh, 1969 Super Bowl in January of that year um I mean they won that going away against the Cleveland Browns I mean it wasn't even it was a not, uh, 34 to nothing I mean it was yeah. and they had beaten the Colts they'd given the Colts their only uh, defeat that year all right. Well, let's 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 wind it back a little bit. Maybe sort of we can maybe set the scene a bit. Sort of how how this team kind of got to this precipice, and and I think and then we can sort of maybe you know segue finally into you know just how uh, dramatic and uh, and and uh, life altering I guess. When it comes okay. To- I mean that, that's fine because that's how the book really really is positioned as well. Well, before so, yeah, we, do we that, can start the conversation. Before- we can start the conversation there. That's yeah. no problem. No, before before we do that, give us give our audience a sense of uh, why this jet story in general is of interest to you in the first place. Uh, are you in the industry, so to speak, or 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 how did you sort of come about to you know uh, pursue this and try to get this documented in uh, in book form? I'm a fan since 1963 when they when the Titans became the Jets, quite by accident. I turned on <clears throat> WHN one night. And lo and behold, Bob Murphy is doing the Jet game. And I become a Met fan that year. And I went, whoa, what is Bob Murphy doing football? And what is this? And so I listened to it. And I went, well, there's no more baseball season. So, I mean, here always I was 12 years old. There's no more baseball season. So I got to have something to keep my attention during, you know, the off season. So I'll follow football. And frankly, it wasn't long thereafter that I started to pay attention to the Knicks and to the Rangers for the same reason. But the Jets always had my interest um, because I was learning football literally by watching the Jets evolve from a laughing stock, even in the American Football League, 
you know, to a team each year that was adding three or four building block players season by season. And I was learning football as I was watching it. And by 66, 67, I was very curious, how good was Larry Grantham? I mean, he was a terrific linebacker in the AFL, but could he, was he, would he be a good linebacker in the NFL? And I looked at Don Maynard and I said, wow, the guy catches, you know, 70, 80 balls a year. Uh, and he and nobody can guard him when he goes deep. How would he do in the NFL? And I looked. The only thing I came to understand that was probably pretty clear was someone like Curly Johnson, who was a punter. I mean, a punter is a punter. If you give him, you know, the time to get his kickoff, uh, there's no difference between the punting and the two leagues. So that was the only thing. By '68, I was really hooked, and I was waiting for this team to live up to the five-year plan that Eubank had announced when he got hired in 1963. He had had taken five years, which turned out, I think, to be six in Baltimore before he made them a championship team. And he said he was going to be able to do the same thing in New York. And after the 67 season, where they finished a half a game out of first place, um, I was really revved up for the next year. And they made two big trades in training camp in 68 that signaled to me that this was serious stuff because they finally got a backup veteran quarterback behind Namath, Babe Perilli, in case Joe got hurt. And they brought in Talamini from Houston, and he was an all-AFL league guard. I couldn't understand how they, how they traded and got an all-AFL guard, and the guy had been a guard on the All-Star team for six years. The guy was a very good football player. And so I figured something was up. Okay, so now we fast forward to uh, the Super Bowl game itself for two weeks. And, and, you know, you you know the story. For two weeks, we, as every fan, Jet or no, was told the Jets have no chance to win this game. Thank you, Jimmy the Greek Snyder, who went position by position in Vegas and gave points to the Colts, a point or two here, uh, advantage in running backs and I think the only position that he had even was quarterback. He thought Earl Morrill was the equal of Joe Namath. But every other position, offensive line, wide receivers, defensive line, linebackers, everything else, he gave the Colts one or two points. And when he was done, he had the Colts favored by 17 and a half points. Um, I didn't think the Jets were going to win the game. My hope was that they would not get embarrassed. That was really it, because I was surprised by the ease with which Green Bay had beaten Kansas City and Oakland. I thought they were both pretty good teams. Um, And when they won, first of all, as the game started and they got a lead and they held a lead and they kept blunting Baltimore and their offense, I got more and more enthused. I was 16 years old and my hormones were just just raging Um, and my adrenaline and everything else by the end of the game. I was I was an incredible high. I was on an incredible high for a week. And I remember going to high school the next day and I had friends who were giant fans who without any exception came up to me and said, "Congratulations, you you guys deserved to win yesterday." Well, I mean, today they probably rag on me and tell me if they played 99 more times the Colts would win all 99 of them. Uh, but back then, they gave, they gave the Jets full credit. Um, and so having experienced the low and, and the, the little expectation 
that they were even going to be in the game, much less win the game. And then to to steadily watch that game evolve and the Jets get the lead and then get control of the lead uh, and then win the game was just a startling event. But there was something else. And that is that I was able to watch the entire game on television. Well, what's the big deal with that? Well, I was also a Met fan. The Mets won the World Series that year. They won the World Series in the middle of the week. And the game was played in the afternoon, and I was in high school. I didn't see those three games at Shea. I heard about them. I saw some highlights when I got home. The last one, game five, when I heard they were winning in the in the ninth inning, I cut the only high school class I ever cut <laughs> and walked to the subway where I had to go to get home every day and waited outside the subway uh, until the Mets had actually, you know, clinched it and it was over. So I never got to see that. And then the Knicks won the NBA title the next uh, spring, and the game was blacked out in New York until midnight because ABC didn't want to show it live in New York. So being fans of those three teams, but having really totally experienced the Jets and what happened, I was really into it. But there's another thing, and that was I love Joe Namath. Everybody loved Joe Namath. But I was a bigger fan of Jerry Philbin and of Emerson Boozer than I was of Joe Namath. They really got my attention because um, of, of the kind of players they were. And I won't go into it now. We'll, we can talk about it when we actually um, you know, do the interview. But um, So I always had this really fascination with all the other guys on the team. And I wrote the book because about four years ago, I was sitting in my family room in January, and the NFL Network was showing Super Bowl three. And my two boys, who were both teenagers, were sitting, and I said, hey, I want you to watch this game. This is a very, very critical game in the history of the National Football League, and I want, to, I want you to see how the Jets won. And I'm sitting here and watching it, and one of my sons points out Philbin. Boy, he looks like a good player, and I told him about Jerry Philbin. And then the other son says to me, Winston Hill, that 75-playing left tackle, he's killing the Colts. And I said, yeah, the guy was an all-pro at left tackle four times, and then he became an all-pro at right tackle four times. And he should be in the Hall of Fame. And I'd always wanted to write a book because I'm a writer by trade. And my wife walked in, and she said, so when are you going to write a book about these guys already? And I said, I haven't had an angle on the book until just now. And she says, and what's the angle? And I said, I'm going to talk to everybody else on the team not named Namath. And I'm going to get their stories of what happened that year. And that's how the book came about. So why don't we uh, tell our, get our audience a little bit sort of in the early days of your Jet fandom, right? Because it's clear being mm -hmm. a Jets fan from the earliest days, right? Or at least when they were yep. reincarnated yep. from the Titans. And we had a really good conversation uh, about the Titans with um, – uh, with Bill Reitzek. Uh, uh, yeah, he's, he's his book is great. His yeah, book, and, and it's, you know, yeah. it's it's certainly whitewashed, I think, right? Because people sort of forget about that. But, you know, let's, oh, yeah. maybe, that's why, and that's why I loved it, because I know almost nothing that he wrote about in that book. So, so that's so that's interesting. So so give me give us a sense then as a fan, a young fan, you know, probably, you know, uh, very, uh, you know, uh, uh, full of alacrity and, and interest and in, in sopping up just about everything you can about this team. How do you become a Jet fan? What did you know of the Titans? And I suspect that first year, right, was, you know, going to games at the Polo Grounds, which is probably not the most exciting and uh, and fun experience. I, I, you know, I only went. To, I've only I went to one Jets game in the '60s. Oh, interesting. So I I couldn't afford to go. I lived in Flushing, 
right by the ballpark. At first, I lived near the Unisphere, two miles away from the ballpark. And then I moved with my family to another part of Flushing, and we were, I figured it out, I was three miles away. But I only went to one jet game because it was fairly expensive. I think a ticket was 12 or $15, which for a teenage kid, you know, I didn't have that kind of money. And my, and my dad wasn't going to give me that kind of money to go to a game either. So do me a favor and just kind of cut me off because, as you can hear, I can get pretty wound up and start to talk and talk and well, talk. Well, no, that's right. So, all right. So that, uh, then tell me how, how this Jets thing came into into being. Like, how, Maybe you can regale the audience a bit in. And how how did this sort of renaming of the team and this repositioning of the team? Well, you know what? I'll be honest with you. I didn't even know there was a Titans. I was completely in the dark. I became a sports fan in 1963, like as I mentioned before. Became a Mets fan. I turned on Channel Nine one day, and it was the bottom of the ninth inning, and the Mets were losing at the Polo Grounds, three to two. And Ryan Hunt came up with guys on second and third, and knocked them both in with a single, with one or two outs in the bottom of the ninth. And I immediately said, wow, I'm going to become a Mets fan. And so I started watching the games on Channel 9 and listening to the games on the radio. The season ended, and that was it. And then, as I mentioned to you, I just happened to turn on WHN one night, one Saturday night while I was at my grandma's uh, apartment, and heard Bob Murphy doing the game. And I just decided right then and there, well, like I said, the baseball season's over. I have to entertain myself some other way. So it was football. And like I also mentioned, uh, several weeks later, it became basketball and it became hockey. So it almost seems to me that, and maybe it's your your young, impressionable age, or maybe, I, you know, I don't know. We'll talk to other that's what I mean, that's what it is. You know, when you're 12, you're, you're, when you're 12 years old, and uh, you really don't have any other outside interests. My grandmother tried to get me interested in stamp collecting, and I was fine. But it's also a testament, though, to to I guess what what was the marketing of a team, right? With a brand new stadium, right? That itself was originally designed for, I guess, at the the, the beginning, is a Continental League baseball team that never materialized. Yeah, well, that was Mets. yeah, that was the idea, but it didn't really get its start until the Met franchise was was uh, created by the National League. Um, and, and the other thing, part of it is, to be honest with you, Tim, because I lived in Flushing, I didn't just look at the Jets and the Mets as my team to root for. I literally thought of them as my backyard team. It's like, you know, it's like here in Chicago, if you live in Wrigleyville, you know, the Cubs are, they're your, not only your team, but, you know, you can reach out and touch them. The ballpark is around the corner. So besides that WHN AM 1050 uh, broadcast and Bob Murphy, how much overlap was there with the Mets? Like I, I I've seen in Nothing, some because uh, this was the season was well underway, I believe, and the Mets season. You know, in those days, the Met, the season ended in September. The World Series was over by early October. No, no, no but I mean in terms of the sort of uh, uh, relationship, if you will, or sort of the the uh, guilt by association. You know, you had two new teams in that brand new stadium. You know, I'm look. I my research. I've got an ad that shows, uh, you know, a Bill Gallo cartoon showing how uh, Mets manager Casey Stengel was essentially entrusting uh, the Jets faithful with the uh, the Mets audience. It was almost like a blessing. So well, and, and don't forget, you know, there was back then there was a conscious effort because the Mets had become so popular to rhyme with the Mets. So you had the Jets and. Excuse me. The Nets came not there, not far thereafter. So you know, it, it was just something that people did. They were trying to 
to rhyme with with the team that had won a lot of people's hearts, even though they couldn't win many games. So give us a sense then of those of those early years of you being a fan and frankly, also this thing called the AFL, right, which is a whole new construct as well. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. The NFL. And, you know, you as a brand new fan. Right. Maybe sort of didn't understand sort of the history of the heritage of the NFL or maybe you did. How much of this was the Jets? How much of this was the AFL? How much of this was New York? Uh, give us a sense of sort of being a fan of this team in this renegade league during the early to mid 1960s. I didn't think of it as a renegade league. I didn't think of the American Football League as anything other than the fact that I couldn't watch it on TV. In 63, ABC still had the games, and they had a game of the week. And I do not recall watching a Jet game on the ABC AFL game of the week that entire season. My first recollections of the Jets come the next year um, when NBC has a contract, and, and the games are... The road games are, are televised. So that's when I started to really be able to watch these guys play. Um, I just thought of these guys as, um, you know, football players. And, and I again, I had no I had no cognizance of whether these guys were any good, except they just lost a lot of games. They were five, eight and one in 63 and in 64 and in 65. Um, and yet I had the sense they were getting better, even though their record wasn't getting any better. And that was because the league was getting better. Um, and I didn't really, you know, have much knowledge about that either. Um, I just started to read everything I could get my hands on. And in those days, there were any number of newspapers in New York City. Um, and so I would just grab as many as I could get. I didn't go out and buy everything, but... We got, I remember we had the Herald Tribune being delivered at home, and my grandmother read the Daily News, and so I'd read that. And um, I remember she had some, some people that would come visit, and they brought a New York Post with them. And there was uh, – my uncle read the World Telegram and Sun and brought that when he came to visit us. So I was just reading a lot of different sports sections and getting what I thought was some very different points of view um, about the Jets as a team. Um, there really wasn't much much else into it because, again, I was learning about football um, on the go. And I was learning about the Jets at the same time. And it wasn't, as I mentioned before, for a couple of years until I got curious enough to wonder, you know, are these guys any good? You know, could they play? Because the NFL was obviously the standard. And you could watch YA Tittle play, and I did. And you could watch the Giants play on the road. And, and, you know, I would watch their games somewhat. Um, But, you know, who knew if if these Jet players were any good? It really wasn't until Namath hit the scene that everything kind of exploded because NBC wanted to put him on every single week if they could. They couldn't show his home games, but every road game, you know, was on. And the NBC just tried to lure college players by telling them if you sign with this league all your games are going to be televised in color next year and cbs wasn't doing that with the national football league so there was a lot of things going on simultaneously to try to capture the interest and the attention of american sports fans uh, you know into football well it seems it seems though that the uh, the jets early years the first years in uh, in shea stadium were um in before namath right was, was Matt, that was Matt Snell, and Matt right. Snell was the big star, and he had a fabulous rookie year. 
And I, I talked with him at great length in the book. And I said, you know, Matt, you had your best year as a rookie. Why is that? And he said, look at the competition I was playing against. And he said, after that, the league got better every single year and it got tougher and tougher to excel. Yeah, but it seems like the, the fans really did take to the team in those first years, right? Whether well, I think it was part of it, or- yeah, but I think, Tim, it was a, a large part of it was the stadium. Yeah. Um, you know, Shea Stadium was supposed to be, for its time, uh, you know, a great place to watch football or baseball. And um, they, the Met, look, if you look at the attendance figures for the Mets, where they moved from the polo grounds, and I think they barely drew a million. I don't think they even drew a million people. If they did, it was just over it. But when they went to Shea Stadium, the attendance exploded because it was a beautiful, clean ballpark with great sight lines and no posts and that sort of thing. And for football, Shea Stadium was pretty darn good, you know, as a football venue. And Sonny Werblin jazzed up the ballpark. Uh, you said you went to see a Jets game. Well, Sonny Werblin put a complete band, a professional band out in left field, you know, near the wall. And uh, he had this little jet plane going up and down the sidelines every time the Jets scored. Um, so he recognized that football could and should be more than just football. It should be uh, an afternoon or an evening of entertainment. Yeah, and it, it, you know it's it's new, it's fresh, right? And uh, it, it's a, it's a destination, but you know that that's clearly not going to last long. And you wonder, and it's probably very simplistic, right, to say, well, everything changed when Namath arrived. Well, certainly it did, right? But this is also a story as you get into in your book and and culminate. We'll get to the get to the end of it eventually in the, in the actual Super Bowl number three. Um, this is this is not just Joe Namath and nothing else, right? There is a team. That that Weeview Bank is building, uh, a, a number of these players uh, are are there for a good portion of this run from you know the decrepit uh, former Titans and uh, Polo Grounds into this new thing. Um, you know, I let's talk about Namath, right? Because th- there's no doubt you you can avoid that, right? The fact that they were able to get him, number one, is an interesting story, right? Because yeah, they didn't have the worst record in the AFL, but they certainly weren't all that. Well, they, they, they they made a very fortuitous deal. But let me get to the point that you first made here, and that is how good the rest of the team was by 68. There were 10 other Jets who were in the AFL All-Star game um, the week after the Super Bowl. There were 11 all told. Namath was the 11th. And... I mean, Jerry Philbin was a great defensive end. He's in the he made the All AFL All Time Team, at, you know, as a defensive end, and he only played six years. John Elliott was a right tackle. People today they mix up Jet fans. They mix up John Elliott, who played offensive tackle in the eighties and nineties for the Jets, with this guy. John Elliott, the defensive tackle, was an absolute uh, dynamo. And, you know, I, I found it – I knew that he was really quick and that he, it made him really hard for, you know, offensive linemen to, to block him. I had no idea exactly what that meant. And I – just to give you an example, Ed Buddy was a 295-pound, five-inch offensive guard. And he played opposite John Elliott. Uh, uh, Buddy played for Kansas City. 
<clears throat> and I talked to Buddy about playing against Elliot because he was dead when I was writing the book. And so I needed somebody who could tell me how good a player this guy was. And I said, why didn't you just run over him? You had him by two inches and 50 pounds. And he said, I couldn't. And I said, what do you mean you couldn't? He said to me, I couldn't get a clean shot on him. I would try to hit him right between the numbers. And he was so quick, he'd get out of the way and I would glance off his shoulder and he'd still be there to make a play. I mean, you know, I, I've never played organized football, but when you hear a, a guy of that size talk about this guy against him who's smaller, but just so quick that you can't get a clean shot on him, it really says quite a bit about his talent. And then on that same team at the All-Star game, you had Maynard, you know, who went into the Hall of Fame, and George Sauer, who was probably in the top three wide receivers in the league at the time, and even Pete Lamons at tight end. And they had any one of their offensive linemen could have gone to the All-Star game, and I think it's two of them, two of them did. Um, they, they, just, they just had such a good team. In fact, Tim, one guy in the interviews I've done said to me, what's the legacy of that 68-69 Jets team? And I thought about it, and here's what I came up with. In the 60s, even though I was a Mets fan, I had to have the highest regard for the history of the Yankees. And Mickey Mantle was my favorite player. He was everybody's favorite player. But everybody in the 60s knew about the 27 Yankees because that was considered the greatest baseball team of all time. Of course, that's the year that, that uh, Ruth hit 60 and, and Gehrig hit 47 or 48. They, they, Ruth out-homered half the teams in the league just all by himself. And I look at the 68-69 Jets team because of the talent and because of what they were able to do that year, not just the Super Bowl, but how beautifully and how well they played the whole season as, as a unit offensively and defensively. That, you know, this is the 27 Yankees if you're a Jets fan. They've never had a team that was as loaded as, as that team was. And that is a real testament, you know, to Weeb Eubank. And, and we should devote a lot of time to him because uh, Sonny Werblin spent the money to sign a lot of players. Weeb Eubank had the more gargantuan task, and that was turning really good, talented collegiate athletes into top-notch professional football players. And that's coaching and even more coaching. Yeah, so in your estimation then, who, who, or or maybe there's multiple who's, were, was, was slash were responsible for, you know, this buildup uh, uh, of of this? Oh, it was, it was, no, there's no doubt, it was no doubt it was Weeb Eubank. No, there's absolutely no doubt. He, because he not only was the coach, he was the general manager. And I was told he made all the draft picks. He took advice from, you know, some of the assistant coaches because assistant coaches in those days were the scouts. They would go out on Saturday if, if the Jets were playing at home and they would scout players, you know, on the East Coast. And if the Jets were playing on the West Coast, they would break up and they would go and watch, you know, West Coast uh, college teams. Um, but Eubank had the final say and he made some horrible choices, but uh in building not only the team that he built, he used a unique philosophy. He put great, great emphasis on intelligence, not just on size. Um, the Jet players told me how the Kansas City Chiefs used to run out on the field 
before they'd play him. And they would run on the field in order of size, the smallest guy out first, and then the bigger, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And they would just kind of run in a circle at midfield to try to intimidate the other team with their size, how big they were, how strong they were. The Jets were not a small team, but they, they were an average-sized team with great intelligence and great quickness and speed. And, and that was the real key to their defense which was unusual in those days. Um, and obviously they were loaded on offense with Namath and all the tools, you know, that he had at his call. And that offensive line, right, uh, you have to devote your chapter nine to it, the O-line, right? It protected, the subtitled, it protected Namath at all costs, right? So yes. we all know who the crown jewels were, right? Um, but that offensive line probably uh, more than uh, earned its fair share, I guess, of, or should have its accolades, right? Because, they knew they were protecting, quote unquote, the franchise. Joe, Joe, Namath, Joe Namath got sacked less than any quarterback in pro football from like 65 when he first got there until like 72, 73, 74. I mean, it's not even close. He got sacked in 1967 nine times the whole year. And for seven or eight of those games, they had no running backs they, because Snell got hurt and Boozer got hurt. And so he'd throw on, you know, two of the three of the three downs every time they had the ball. The other team knew they were going to throw. And Namath didn't like to throw screen passes and short stuff. He liked to go for the bomb or, as I mentioned in the book, a down and out. I'm, I'm, again, I'm not an organized football player, but, you know, we've all played on the sand lot and a down and out. Simple play like that. A normal professional down and out is like 10 yards. Uh, George Sauer would run 20 yards downfield, make a fake, and then cut to the sidelines, turn around, and the ball would be right there in his chest. Namath was throwing the ball 35, 40 yards on a simple down and out that other quarterbacks were throwing 10, 15 yards. So before we go further, though, I, I want to talk about Namath specifically because – and you mentioned you, uh, Eubank and, and – you know, his his genius in this. But I, I think people forget that, you know, when Namath was secured uh, via the draft or, or the shenanigans that they, got they, they made it, they made a trade to get the first pick in the AFL draft. And and but but even then. Right. And, and all the excitement. Right. The Broadway Joe or so the Playboy sort of lifestyle and stuff, you know, an immediate sensation. But but we was not uh, necessarily certain that Namath was ready uh, to be a success, let alone, you know, kind of be thrown in there with the Lions, right? He he had like two or three, maybe even four other quarterbacks, including, I believe, a Heisman Trophy winner, John Huarte. Well, they, they, they drafted John Ewart in the Ewart, my second round. Um, and John Ewart went to the college all-star game, which they used to play in those days. Uh, the Actually, Sonny Werbel didn't want to send any of his high-priced you know, young talent that he had just signed to the All-Star game. And he was ordered by the league, by the American Football League, that he had to release, I think, three or four of them and let them go to the game. So John Ewart went to the college All-Star game, and he had the game of his life against the Cleveland Browns, I guess it would have been, at 65. And um, he was uh, a voted the most valuable player in the game. And he had a great game, a lot of yards, a couple of touchdowns, uh, just just really did beautifully and came back to camp and he, he was a good player and, and he was it turned out he was a workmanlike player. 
He existed in the league for 10 or 11 years, got himself a nice pension, but he was nothing more than a backup quarterback who rarely played uh, for the teams that he ended up with. After They just released him his rookie year. They traded him to Boston. Um, Namath, he didn't really have a lot of competition. In fact, one of the interesting things to me is in my conversations with Ewart, this is not in the book, um, I said to John, you signed with them after Namath signed with the Jets. Why did you go to the Jets? Well, I had a better offer than the Eagles gave me. I said, did Sonny Werblin or Weave Eubank say that you'd have a shot to win the number one quarterback job? And he said, no. Uh, I said, so why would you go there if they put all this money in Namath and they paid him twice as much as they paid John Ewart? And everything was public pretty much back then because Werblin wanted everybody to know how much he's, he's, he's humongous salaries he was paying his, his rookie players. And um, I actually asked John Ewart, um, it, it, you're a Heisman Trophy winner who played at Notre Dame and had, had won accolades. It doesn't sound like you were all that competitive, that you had a, a fire in your belly to fight to be the number one quarterback. And he just kind of chuckled and said, well, I wanted to play, but I wasn't going to make a big deal about it. You know, today you got these guys sitting on the bench and they're fighting, you know, to get into any kind of a game, no matter what professional sport we're talking about. John Ewart didn't have that. Namath didn't uh, start until the third or fourth game of his first season. They had a quarterback named Mike Tolliver who had been there for the year before. He was from Illinois and he had a great arm, but, um, his arm didn't really work that well because he couldn't hit his receivers. He just, you know, flung the ball as hard as he could, and and really it didn't have a lot of connections. So he almost won the job by default, the name meaning Namath. Werblin wanted him to start. The fans wanted Namath to start. Everybody wanted to see Broadway Joe play, uh, and it really wasn't until Tolliver showed that he wasn't up to it that they finally put Namath in the lineup and let him play. And he ended up being the rookie of the year. He doesn't have the greatest statistics, you know, for for that year. But he was such a talent and he drew so much attention and everybody wanted to see him play that, you know, he was an obvious choice for that honor. Yeah. I mean, so how much of that those early days was just his persona and, and how much of it was his his talent? Right. Because it's very interesting to hear you've got two very uh, arguably quality college you know, quarterback arms that are in the mix or at least in the background and, and or, you know, under which I guess Ubeck was sort of saying, you know, maybe Namath can kind of learn and sort of ease his way into it. But I guess it, it seems to me there's a little bit more of the the pizzazz and the storyline of Namath, you know, kind of maybe pushing it a little earlier than maybe Eubank would have wanted in the first place. Well, Eubank, you know, but here's something that you should remember, Tim. Back then, the, uh, the rule of thumb was a rookie quarterback – would stand on the sidelines for four years and hold the clipboard until they thought he was ready to play. Namath kind of broke all that rules. In fact, he wasn't the only guy because the American Football League needed good young quarterback talent. You know, they had George Blanda, who was already in his mid-30s, and Tobin Rode, who played in the NFL for 12 years, and Babe Perilli, who had bounced all around. They needed these young quarterbacks to really establish themselves. So Namath... Namath got that opportunity, but you also have to remember that Sonny Werblin was a master PR guy, and he did everything he could to 
mold Namath not only into a star on the field, but a star off the field. And he was a celebrity in his time. Namath would, would go to nightclubs and he would um, he'd have Raquel Welch on his arm or, or you know, he went to, to Barbara Streisand a couple of times, you know, on dates after she did Funny Girl. Uh, and he was all, all the time being photographed because Worldling would tell the press where he was going to be. So that was kind of the legend of Broadway Joe being built, you know, on in the New York Post and the Daily News every day. Um, and he also became a sex symbol. A lot of fans who came out to Shea Stadium were women. And it was really the first time that women started to pay any attention to professional football. So he, he got that, you know, uh, you know, in, in his credit as well. Um, if you look at his numbers, even for his career, he doesn't knock you out. In fact, um, one of my nephews, when he heard about the book I was going to write, he actually went and he looked at the numbers from Super Bowl three. And he said, you know, Namath doesn't, he didn't have a, a great game statistically that day. He didn't have a, the kind of game that Terry Bradshaw did or Troy Aikman did or Tom Brady has had and that sort of thing. And I said to him, but that wasn't his job that day. His job was to control the Colts' defense and keep them keep them on the field and, and not let the Colts' offense get on the field. So he wasn't gunslinging that day. And it was one of the few times in his career that he didn't gunsling, and it was probably one of the reasons why it was his, his finest professional performance. It's also interesting, too, that, uh, you know, here's Namath, you know, sort of the, uh, the original or the uh, 60s version of the, uh, the playboy, right, and uh, burning the proverbial candle at both ends. Didn't seem to affect him on the field, really, right? He only seemed to get better and better. Six <laughs> seven, right? He's throwing over 4,000 yards, right? Which is, is a record. Well, in that year, he threw for 4,000 yards because they had no running game, and he was throwing on almost every down. But you make a great point because he had a ritual on Saturday night before a game. Um, it went something like this. He wanted a blonde and two Johnny Walker Reds, and he was set for the evening. We should all be so lucky that that would be the uh, the impetus to uh, to be successful in life. Uh, yeah, and, he, and he, he said, you know, he did a Playboy interview after they won the Super Bowl. And in it, he talked about the fact that the Jets trainers had told him they had no problem with him having sex the night before a game. But, you know, in those days, they used to say you don't have sex before a big game in any sport because it, it robs the energy out of your legs. And Namath not only didn't care about that, he claimed the trainer told him, hey, if it relaxes, you go ahead and do it. In fact, he had one of his worst games uh, that 68 season um, where they played Buffalo. And, and they went up to Buffalo, and, and he, I guess he was a good boy the night before. And he threw five interceptions, and three of them were run back for touchdowns. And Dave Herman, who played offensive guard for them, uh, told Namath in the locker room, if you ever come in here and you haven't gotten laid and drunk the night before a game, um, I'm going to put this alcohol right down your throat. Now that's that's taking one for the team, now isn't it? That's that's real team team loyalty. That, that's that's being a team player. So, all right. So let's uh, a couple of things along the way here, right? So a couple of very important events, sort of during this period of time leading up to this game, and we'll find we will get to it. Um, the, uh, the the NFL and the AFL announcing effectively in 66, right, that the, a merger 
was eventually going to happen circa, what, 1970 or so. Yeah, they had to wait till 70 because that's when the TV contracts would expire. Yeah, so how much did that kind of change the dynamic in both the AFL, the games, the Jets, uh, its perception in New York, for example, versus the Giants? I mean, it was an instant credibility, this merger announcement, but it certainly set the tone for what arguably should be a somewhat of an equilibrium, right? The only equilibrium that I thought existed was that if you pick up the New York Times from those days and you pick up the Sunday morning newspaper, that there would be a headline at the top that would say something like, Giants play the Eagles today and the Jets host the Patriots. So they were getting equal billing on the top headline. I don't think that the Jets were really treated all that respectfully. I know they weren't by the players. The Jet players to a man complained to me about they'd make personal appearance and get a third of the money that a giant player got uh, for making the same appearance. Um, and and the Giants, the giant owners, you know, they, they wouldn't let Marty Glickman, who was broadcasting the Giant games, give a Jet score, even after the merger announcement. They just wouldn't let him do it. It's like they didn't exist. Um, so... I don't think that that really came to pass, but you, you bring up an interesting thing about the merger. Sonny Werblin and Al Davis, who, who, were, who was running the Elton Raiders at that point in 66, they did not want a merger. And they didn't want a merger because, primarily, among other things, because the Jets and the 49, Jets and the Raiders, and some of the other AFL teams as well, were going to have to pay an indemnity to the New York Giants and to the San Francisco 49ers because the Jets in Oakland had, quote-unquote, invaded these existing NFL territories. And Eubank and Davis both told the other AFL owners when it came time to vote, don't vote for a merger now. In a year, the NFL will be paying us to merge because when when we take players away from them, uh, which the AFL did, Davis – Davis signed John Brody for the AFL. He signed Roman Gabriel. He signed Mike Ditka. Uh, and there were others ready to go to the American Football League. They got big contracts, uh, much bigger than they'd been paid in the NFL. And that's when the merger really, you know, got pushed right up to the front burner. Because already the NFL owners had realized that Namath signing had caused – all the teams in the AFL and some of the teams in the NFL to pay what were considered outrageous rookie salaries. And it completely wiped out the NFL salary structure. They were giving the best rookie talent, like Bob Lilly of of the Cowboys. Um, I was told he got $12,000 and a small bonus to sign with the Cowboys. And he was about as fine a defensive lineman as there was, you know, in college football at that time. Even Gail Sayers, I can tell you, he only signed for $25,000 with with the Chicago Bears. The Jets were ready to try to sign him for much more, but Kansas City wouldn't trade his rights to them. The Jets wanted to sign Dick Butkus, and they gave him a blank check, said, whatever you want, we'll give you whatever you want. This is months before they signed Joe Namath. But But George Hallis had already gotten a verbal understanding with Butkus that he would play for the Bears. And by the way, for years afterwards, Butkus rued the fact that he had turned down the Jets and gone to play for the Bears. So the the structure of, of salaries in the National Football League had been completely destroyed 
And that was step one to force the NFL owners to try to get a merger. And then when Al Davis started stealing some of the NFL's best talent, well, that was it. That 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 got the merger rolling right away. But even then, Werblin and Davis didn't want to have a merger. They wanted to hold off and really hold the NFL's feet to the fire. So Werblin's an interesting character in all of this too, right? Because he was part of the syndicate, or maybe the the ringleader, I guess, of the syndicate. That it was, you know, I, people think he was. I don't think he was, but he was certainly part of the syndicate, and he was willing to be the front man. Right. Well, but but it, there's no doubt he was instrumental or part of the process of getting the team from uh, Harry Wismer uh, back when they were the Titans and 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 bringing the Jets in their new incarnation into life. Obviously, the his knowledge of media and is obviously his attraction to uh, a big star and, and pumping up that star in Joe Namath. But what, what I find interesting as the team is getting incrementally better and, and Namath you know, showing his arm at a, at a then record pace in 67. Um, I, I think it's probably important to kind of dwell a little bit on the person that is Sonny Werblin and all this, because in 68, right. And again, in, in retrospect, this is an interesting time given what happens later in the season and or the early part of next, the next year, Werblin basically is kind of forced out of the, of the organization altogether at the beginning of 68, isn't he? Yeah, he wasn't kind of. He was forced out. The other owners, and particularly the owners' wives, were very upset that the Jets would have press conferences and dinners and this sort of thing, and they would relegate the other owners to the back of the room. They thought they should be sitting in the front of the room with Werblin and his wife and Weeb and his wife and et cetera. And, hey, I, I can't argue you know, against that point. And so it came to a head and either Worldland was going to buy them out or they were going to buy him out. And he couldn't come up with the cash to buy the other guys out. He wanted to. But if he paid the $6 million price tag that an accountant had set for the value of the team, uh, we would have had to hock – so he would have to have hocked everything that he owned, all his homes and everything else. And you know, he just wouldn't have had any more money. So he had to sell out to them. Uh, and, you know, that, that to me is one of the sadder parts of the story because, yeah, he was there during the Super Bowl. He lived down in southern Florida, had a place there and was at the game and, and hosted the Jet players the night before and, the, and after they won the Super Bowl. But, you know, he, he wasn't in the middle of it the way he could have been and should have been, having really built the team and made all the, the decisions, money and, and otherwise. Do I have this right that, and I wonder how much he was involved in this, and if, even if it's true, that uh, prior to the 68 season, Ubeg was even even necessarily guaranteed to, to, to last in, the, in, in his role as coach, right? Even though they were improving, there was discussion that maybe he would be tossed. And, and I, do I have this right that Vince Lombardi – was in their on their radar, or maybe Sonny's. They, they, they talked. They, they talked to Lombardi. Lombardi had just retired from Green Bay, I think, the year before. He retired after the second Super Bowl, and he was the general manager of the Packers. And um, Lombardi wasn't going to take the job probably for two reasons, and one of them was he was an NFL guy, and he would have. He felt, I'm sure, that he would have been stabbing the the, uh, the Mara family in the back by going the coach, you know, on the other side of town. So that didn't come to pass. And then ironically, the very next year, after the Jets won the Super Bowl, he went to, to Washington and had his 
his one year with the Redskins. Yeah, that's interesting because you wonder like what would have happened if that all changed and stuff too. And and again, this is this is really interesting in hindsight because 1968, such a pivotal season or these seasons. Yeah, yeah. For Jets, and, and, you know, there's such a big, before it started, and and Tim, there's such a huge difference in in attitude and philosophy and in I'll say behavior between Eubank, who basically didn't like to find players, didn't scream or yell. He saw himself as a teacher, and he was a hell of a teacher. Um, he could coach anywhere, anybody on the field, just about. And a Lombardi, who Jerry Kramer famously said, he treats us all the same, like dogs. I mean, he was a real taskmaster. And you have to wonder how Namath, you know, would have done under Lombardi. I, I happen to think he would have done very well, because Sonny Jurgensen wasn't much different, you know, as a personality and as a guy who liked good times outside uh, the field, off the field. And he immediately fell in love with Lombardi when he went to Washington. All right, time for me to catch my breath, get a cool, tasty beverage, and uh, remind you, while we do so, that uh, our friends at Audible uh, are here to uh, remind you that uh, you can get a free audiobook download uh, of your choice from over 180,000 titles. Uh, if you go to audibletrial.com slash good seats and uh, use that link, of course, to uh, try for yourself a free audiobook on us, uh, gratis, if you will. And you will love the idea of audiobooks. It's uh, it's an awesome way to kill time uh, and uh, occupy and stimulate your mind, uh, perhaps when your eyes are busy uh, doing uh, something else. And of course, there are plenty of uh, interesting books to be found, especially in the world of sports and sports history. And I think our audience might enjoy a few of these, of course, including uh, the seminal work by uh, baseball uh, legend Jim Bouton. It's called Ball Four. It is uh, not only written, but it's also narrated by him. You could use your free credit for that book. And of course, as you know, Ball Four uh, centers around the 1969 uh, one-year wonder that is the uh, Seattle, was the Seattle Pilots of Major League Baseball, but obviously the uh, the background for a whole lot of other observations about the sport of baseball. And it remains to this day, uh, perhaps uh, one of the most celebrated writings about the sport of baseball uh, in this country. Of course, you can also, if you're not a big baseball fan, you can go into the world of soccer uh, with uh, the autobiography called My Turn by Johan Cruyff, the uh, uh, late Johan Cruyff, uh, perhaps one of the world's best ever uh, soccer players. Uh, he of Dutch heritage, of course, uh, plenty of uh, a great legendary years at club play as well as national team play uh, for the Dutch team, as well as for our audience, maybe a little bit of interest, uh, his journeys in the North American Soccer League in the late 70s and early 80s with the uh, Washington Diplomats uh, and the uh, Los Angeles Aztecs. And of course, if you're into football, uh, there's probably no better book, especially if you find yourself uh, really interested in the sort of deep and rich history of the NFL with uh, the book called NFL Football, A History of America's New National Pastime. It is written by Richard Crapeau and narrated by Marlon May. That, too, uh, is uh, an audiobook that you could choose from over, like I said, uh, 180,000 titles. Uh, there's got to be something in there that's going to be of interest to you. And by all means, give it a try. And we appreciate your doing so at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you're going to get your free uh, audiobook download. You can cancel it any time. And again, even if you cancel it, you can keep that book as long as your device exists. So again, we appreciate it. Give it a try. Audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now back to our conversation. Thank you. 
So let me let's talk about this 1968 season, right? Because it's obviously crucial and, and pivotal and, and and an amazing story in its own right. But it starts off, from what I understand, not unlike most of the other seasons that the Jets had at Shea Stadium, uh, on the road, right? I, I it, it feels to me like the Jets were the second team in in Shea Stadium behind the Mets in terms. Yeah, of- they, they they always were, but that year was not. Um, entirely like that, although the first two games were played on the road. They played at Kansas City, and then they played the Boston Patriots in Birmingham. And then they got to play a home game uh, against uh, Denver, excuse me, against San Diego. Uh, And then they went on the road. I'm sorry, the third game was in Buffalo. They played the first three games on the road. You're you're absolutely right. Uh, they, They didn't have the right to play on the field until the Mets were eliminated. And the Mets got eliminated fairly early in 68. They finished ninth, uh, the only time <laughs> in their first couple of years they didn't finish last. And so they got to they got to play the fourth game at home against San Diego uh, and the fifth game at home against Denver. Uh, but, yeah, they played a heavy road schedule. Um, and they, they didn't do – they did great in the first game against Kansas City, um, and they did fine against Boston, and Patriots were not very good in the second game. And in the third game, they went to Buffalo, and Namath had his five-interception game. The Jets, I mean, the Jets, there's no reason the Jets should have lost that game, but they found a way to lose, and that was to have, you know, three three interceptions run back for touchdowns. And then they went they went home to San Diego, and they beat them on a Saturday night. And then Denver came in, and Denver had 21 rookies. And they beat the Jets again because Namath threw another five interceptions. And that was a turning point in the season. Because they kind of put Namath under wraps after that, and they had him follow the game plan strictly, which he did anyway all the time. And they emphasized their running game, their kicking game, and their defense. And they won the next three or four games in a row uh, at Shea, um, just you know using those strengths, you know, of the team. So uh, I, I, I say in the book that Namath had four different seasons. That year, he had the first game against Kansas City where he was superb, and and he he threw two long touchdown passes and he made a incredibly clutch third down throw with like five minutes left in the game that kept the ball in the Met Jets possession and they ran out the clock one by one point and Kansas City had Jan Stenerud, one of the greatest kickers of all time, who could hit fifty yard field goals. You know, he was one of the first. Um, uh, soccer style kickers. He could hit 50 yard field goals, no problem at all. And if they'd gotten the ball, they probably would have, you know, gotten a field goal from him and they would have beaten the Jets. But the Jets didn't give up the ball the last five, six minutes, thanks to Namath. Um, so that, w- that was his first kind of incarnation that year. And then you have him, you know, with, with the five interception games. And the second one finally gets him to realize that he's taking unnecessary risks with his throws. And so I describe it, they put him in a cocoon and they said, hand the ball to Snell, hand the ball to Boozer, hand the ball to Mathis, throw a couple of screen passes, throw some short passes to Sauer and to Maynard and to Lamons, and let's just take it real simple. And he did that. And then they played Oakland on the road in the famous Heine game. And they let him loose. And that week, and the next week against San Diego, he had his two best games of the season. He threw for 
each one well over 300 yards and three touchdowns and no interceptions and just was an absolute marvel to watch. Um, and then they played the last three, four games at home and, he, and they had Pirelli play quite a bit because he hadn't had a chance to play. And then comes the playoffs. He has the big championship game, you know, against uh, uh, um, Oakland and, of course, the Super Bowl game. So he had really an up and down and up and down type season. Uh, and yet he was voted uh, uh, the, the Pro Football Player of the Year at the end of the season, even though I think he had 15 touchdowns and 17 interceptions. All right, let's talk about the Raiders that season, right? Because it's sort of a tale of two games, right? That uh, mm-hmm. the aforementioned Heidi game, which, uh, you know, for you young whippersnappers out there, right, you, you could look it up. Um, you want to kind of give us a little a thumbnail of sort of what was going on and how that game became the Heidi game? Because it's Well, first of all, there's a huge rivalry between the Jets and Oakland because we, Bank had very little use for Al Davis. Uh, early on in the Jets' uh, history, uh, the two teams made a trade, and we traded um, Daynard Paulson, who was a pretty good defensive back, a good safety, uh, to Oakland for an offensive guard, and uh, his name escapes me now. And Al Davis forgot to tell Weeb that the offensive guard was committed and had to had to serve in the National Guard uh, for like the first five, six, seven games of the season, and Weeb did not like that. There was also really bad blood because Walt Michaels, who was the Jets' defensive coordinator in the Super Bowl season, had started his coaching career with Oakland in 1963, 62, excuse me, and uh, he had been let go after one season and rather unceremoniously let go. He'd been treated rather shabbily when they told him that he was not coming back. And so he had really a tremendous amount of anger. Uh, at the Oakland franchise. And and both Weeb and Michaels let that that dislike filter right down to the players. And the Jets didn't have a lot of success playing in Oakland um, in, in their early years. In fact, famously, the year before the Heidi game, they had, I think, played uh, Oakland the next to last game of the season. And uh, Namath had had his jaw broken by the Raiders. Um, they literally just smashed his, his helmet off his head and, and broken his jaw. And that picture of him being hit like that and, and basically being driven to the ground uh, had been blown up and was put up in the Oakland um, offices uh, in giant size for everybody to see. Um, so, there was very bad blood between the two teams. So they go. They just go to Oakland. They have the best team in the in the East of the AFL. And it's pretty clear they're going to win the AFC, the AFL East. In fact, they did the next week when they beat San Diego. Um, and it's a back and forth game between Namath, who's having a great game, and Daryl Lamonic, who's having a great game. But a couple of odd things happened. The Jets got incredibly penalized that game. Um, in in the first half, John Elliott. Uh, had been cheap-shotted by Jim Otto, the Oakland center, and when he retaliated, they threw him out of the game. And he went berserk because he said, hey, you know, I'm just responding to what this guy did to me. Well, of course, they didn't have replay in those days, and somebody, nobody could see what had actually happened. But Elliott was thrown out of the game. And the Jets got called for five or six uh, grabbing-the-helmet penalties that game. And the Jets didn't do things like that. 
Um, and so they were very frustrated by that. And then in the second half, Jim Hudson, who was their starting safety, and he was one of the AFL All-Stars I referred to earlier, he got thrown out of the game. Uh, they said that he had yanked the helmets of, uh, of one of the Oakland running backs, and it was pretty clear he had not. But he got thrown out of the game. And as he left the field, he gave the half a piece sign to the official, which earned him a fine on top of that. So the Jets, it's a back and forth game, and the Jets go ahead 32 to 29 on a Jim Turner field goal with a minute and three seconds left in the game. And at that point, uh, NBC breaks and goes to the Heidi movie. And so no one except on the West Coast gets to see the last minute of the game. And in the last minute of the game, Daryl LaMonica picked on the substitute for Jim Hudson. His name was Mike D'Amato. And he sent out a running back with pretty good speed, Charlie Smith, who beat him, you know, on, on, a, on a pass play. And it put Oakland ahead. Uh, so now the score is uh, just at 32, and Oakland had 36. 36 to 32. And Oakland kicks off, and Earl Christie, the Jets' um, returner, uh, drops the ball and goes back to pick it up. And as he goes to pick it up, uh, Mark Smolinski, who was on the Jets' special teams, accidentally knocks into Christie and knocks the ball loose. And it tumbles into the end zone, and the Raiders cover it in the end zone, and uh, they, kick the, they kick the extra point, and now it's 43-32, to 32 and the game is over. Um, but three-quarters of the country hadn't seen the last minute. And uh, Mrs. Weeb Eubank calls Weeb after the game and congratulates him on the victory. And Weeb said, what are you talking about? We lost. The next day, um, what had happened, including the Heidi, you know, switcheroo, was on page one of the New York Times. And the New York Times, a very serious newspaper in those days, and they didn't put sports on the first page, but they did that day. Yeah, and it's the, the – uh, the, uh, you know, the follow through of all of that is the, the reason why we see overages now uh, when games continue to go into overtime, et cetera. Yeah. After that, after that, uh, the, both of the networks, CBS and NBC, you know, told the league, told their respective leagues that they would not switch away from a game until it was finished from there on. Well, besides that sort of major spectacle slash, uh, you know, media debacle, right? How much of the because the, the the Jets, you know, only lost three games that season, right? And the, the to Oakland being one of them, how much was that impetus and or incentive when uh, they were to meet in the AFL Championship in December, uh, and this time at home at Shea? Uh, was there bad blood and or a special sort of, you know, peak? I guess in the Jets uh, locker room, or is it the, just the, the Jet? The Jets players told me again, almost to a man, we wanted the Raiders. The Raiders had to play Kansas City in a playoff game because they had both finished the regular season uh, 12 and two, I believe it was. Uh, and so they had a playoff game in Oakland crushed Kansas city and the jets wanted to play Oakland again. And they wanted to play him in New York. They'd actually beaten them at Shea the year before. It's the only loss that the Raiders had on their way to the Super Bowl. Um, and the jets figured um, the defensive players figured that the cold weather was going to be something that Oakland was not accustomed to. And it was a frigidly cold day that, that day, December 29th, 1968. And uh, very windy, because Shea was always extremely windy with gusts 
going in all kinds of directions. And just when you would think you'd figured out those gusts, they would change and swirl and things like that. So the Jets, the Jets wanted Oakland to, they wanted to get up, you know, to get even. But the Jets also felt that they could play them even better at Shea because the, the Raiders were not used to the conditions. And Shea Stadium for a football game for the players was not an ideal place to play, particularly once the weather got bad because a good part of the field was still not, not grass covered. They let the baseball field stay out there, except they, they dropped the, the mound, uh, the pitcher's mound, to a reasonable height. And there was a peculiar little thing in the end zone, uh, I was told, in the right end zone behind home plate at Shea Stadium. Uh, it was, I can't remember exactly what the specifications were, but it was several feet lower in the right corner of the end zone than the rest of the end zone. And the Jet players knew that, and the receivers knew that, and they could make adjustments, and so could Namath. But if you were the quarterback on the other team, uh, even if you knew about it, it's very hard to make an adjustment just for that one game. You come out on the field before the game, and the kickers and the quarterbacks have maybe 15 minutes to throw the ball around or kick the ball around and try to get used to the conditions. So they just thought they had an advantage there. Um, again, nip and tuck game. Oakland takes their only lead of the game with, uh, I guess, it's eight minutes left uh, in the in the fourth quarter, and uh, Don Maynard goes to Namath and and reminds him what he had told Namath early in the game, and that is he knew that he could get a step or two on George Atkinson, who was the rookie defensive back that was covering Maynard, and he said, "You just let me know. I can I can get a step on him, and we can go for the bomb whenever you want to." And on the second play from scrimmage after the Jets had fallen behind, Namath calls that play. And what's remarkable about the play is how far Namath had to throw the ball. And against a wind, he was throwing from the closed end, excuse me, the open end of Shea Stadium from about uh, the 30-yard line on the, near the left hash mark. And he th- ended up throwing the ball to the 10-yard line on at on the right sideline down the field. And Dave Anderson of the New York Times told me that the throw had to have gone at least 70 or 75 yards in the air. <laughs> Remarkable. And, and and Don Maynard called that catch over his right shoulder. The ball was aimed for his left shoulder, but the wind took it over his right shoulder. He said it was the greatest and the most important catch he ever made. It, on the very next play, Maynard caught a touchdown pass uh, that Namath threw from the seven or eight yard line, and and that's what those are the winning points of the game. Now, and arguably one of the uh, seminal moments in his uh, eventual Hall of Fame career, Maynard um, Namath too, for that matter. I mean, look, it, 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 I'm sure it became pretty common for sort of the uh, that electricity and, and Namath to kind of make things happen, uh, Maynard or otherwise with Maynard or otherwise. Um, I, I wonder, having not been there. What the feeling was, besides, you know, elation at winning the AFL championship and and then and, and righting the wrong, I guess, of losing that game to, uh, late to, to Oakland, uh, you know, a couple of months earlier. Um, I'm wondering how much, you know, the locker room and the management kind of thought, well, OK, you know, AFL championship, it's great. We, we've really sort of climbed the mountain over these last, you know, six, seven, eight years as a franchise. Uh, and then, you know, two weeks later, we're kind of going off to the slaughter. Right to go meet these 
these Colts that are just that just demolished the uh, the Cleveland Browns earlier or later in the day uh, in the NFL side, uh, or was the beginnings of sort of we can maybe win this whole thing kind of starting to circulate? Are we able to discern any of that sort of feeling in the you know after that game? And you know, I, I, I got to tell you, the, the players were just so enthusiastic having beaten Oakland finally in a game that really mattered that I don't think most of them even thought about the Super Bowl. You know, true professionals, uh, a number of them said to me, hey, you have to win the AFL championship game before you even can get to the Super Bowl. So one game at a time. And I think that was their attitude. The fascinating thing to me about what happened next is that while the rest of the football world was being told by the media that the Jets had no chance, that the Jets watched the film of the Colts and they thought that Oakland was a better player, was a better team than the Baltimore Colts were. And they cited things to me, which are in the book, about why they felt that way and how they felt they could attack the Colts and how vulnerable the Colts were to certain things. And that's what played out in the game. Uh, The veteran players in particular they told me they had no fear of the Colts. Well, Michaels told me that he told the players in the locker room, hey, I played in the National Football League for, for 12 years. Um, they put on their pant legs one at a time, just like we do. And our coaches have come from the same places that their coaches have. And you with the players have come from the same colleges that they've had. Now, unless you don't believe that we're really good coaches or that we've got a lot of talent on this team, there's no way in the world you should worry about having to play the Baltimore Colts. And the veteran players, just about every one of them said, no, no problem at all. In fact, I think the, the best remark came from Don Maynard. And it's on the back cover of the book. And Don Maynard told me he had no fear about playing Baltimore. And I asked him why. I said, Green Bay had killed Kansas City and then destroyed Oakland. And he said, I wasn't scared of Baltimore because Vince Lombardi was not going to be coaching the Colts. Interesting. Very interesting. Well, yeah, it's also, too, the Colts, you know, were having their issues, too, right? Johnny U was not sort of kind of his Hall of Fame career top of uh, of game either. And Earl Morrell was, you know. And, and well, you know, Unitas was hurt that year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, clearly, you know, you could see it in the Super Bowl. He just couldn't really throw the ball that well. He was throwing a lot, a lot of really uh, dovetail, you know, pop-ups. Um, but they had so thoroughly outclassed the National Football League using the tactics that they did. And ironically, a lot of those tactics were something that the Jets were not only accustomed to in the AFL. Things like, you know, all-out blitzes and, and basically playing zone defense against Namath, which for the most part was playing with a stick of dynamite. Because his receivers were so good and they were so in tune with working with Namath on every kind of pass pattern and in every kind of situation that, you know, it was almost silly to, to play his own defense against them. You had to try to stop the receivers. And in those days, you got to remember, Tim, they had what they called bump and run. And you could not only bump the guy at the line of scrimmage, you could bump him all the way downfield until the ball was in the air. Then it was interference. But you could knock the crap out of them. Much tougher to be a wide receiver in those days and to have a quarterback you know, hit, hit the wide receiver. You had to be fast and elusive 
um, and have, you know, like, which is what Maynard was, or have just unbelievable moves like George Sauer Jr., you know, who could just fake guys, you know, out of their underdrawers. So um, the other thing that's really fascinating, and you have to look at it in, in retrospect, Bobby Boyd was playing against Don Maynard. In fact, I, I talked to Maynard. I met him for the first time about a month ago. I interviewed him for the book over the phone. And I said, did you know that Bobby Boyd's t- a timing in the 40-yard dash was five seconds? I mean, that's something like you or I would run, Tim. And he was a, considered one of the best defensive backs in the National Football League, and the Colts had not allowed a long touchdown the entire year. And Maynard said to me, hey, I didn't know how fast this guy or slow this guy was. I just looked at the film and I knew I could outrun this guy. I can get past this guy simple. And he did a couple of times. And even though he never caught a pass in that game, he scared the Willikers out of the Colts and forced them to double-team him the entire game from like the middle of the first quarter on, and that's why George Sauer had such a huge game on the other side against Lonnie Lyles because he was going one on one. All right, <clears throat> two more questions. Um, which and this is just it's just again very interesting, and, and I can see some of the video clips uh, playing in, in in my head right now. Yeah, but m- give us a sense of, and I'm just curious, maybe some of the other players that you talked to in in writing this book about what was going on those two weeks before. This is the time when there was. You know, uh, there were two weeks before the beginning of the Super Bowl, right? So there was a whole bunch of, you know, play up and press and all that kind of stuff. Namath seemed to be pretty much like a loose cannon, right? He was kind of going all over the place, not only, you know, touting a victory and stuff, but he was like, he was going at it. He was, you know, knocking Earl Morrill as being maybe the third best if he was if he was on the Jets. and The fifth and, best. The fifth best. Okay, there He's you go. The fifth best in, he would have been the fifth best in the AFL. And he apparently got in some kind of altercation or verbal kind of conflict with uh, uh, the Colts kicker in a restaurant down in Miami. I mean, what, what was going on? with? Is this just Namath trying to psych everybody out or or, or, or is he just nuts or, or what? And and where are yeah. the other players in all of this? Are they kind of like just kind of keeping their mouths shut or do they similarly have the same kind of braggadocio that, uh, that Namath did? Uh, everybody was supposed to be under wraps. Um, Eubank came into um, the first meeting with the players after he had spent days with the other assistants watching film of the Colts. And he told the Jets, if we, can, if we can't pass against this team, we ought to just quit being football players. That's how confident he was. Uh, but he said the key thing here is we have to keep our mouths shut because – the Colts don't respect us. And I talked to some of the players, Tim, uh, on the Colts, and they didn't. They had so much uh, overconfidence that they were going to walk out on the field and destroy the Jets. Uh, it was palpable. Um, the Jets told me that they would turn on the TV at night and watch the local sports in Miami, and you'd hear the Colts. They didn't even know a name of a player on the Jets other than Namath. Uh, Larry Grantham, in particular, told me, you know, I, I'm sitting there and they don't even know who I am. They don't know who, who who we are on defense. They don't know any of our guys. There's no compliment. Oh, the Jets are a pretty good team. They have good pass rush and, and their linebackers are pretty good. But n- not a name, not, you know, not like you would expect to hear if you're a player who's got a lot of pride. Namath was Namath. Um, 
the night, the morning after he popped off about how the Jets were going to win and made his guarantee, um, several of the players, all the players came down to have breakfast. And uh, one of the veteran players, Paul Rochester, said to me, I wasn't really that surprised. I figured two things. Number one, Joe had had too much to drink again, and Joe was being Joe. And Larry Grantham uh, said to me some euphemism, you know, from the South about, you know, you don't get a cat angry at you, and, you know, especially if he's got long nails and that sort of thing. He said, but, you know, it was Joe, and we know that Joe didn't mean any harm. Um, I don't think Larry was being entirely honest with me, but that's what he said to me. Um, but the, the young players, ironically, you know, Namath had made Namath had made not a prediction, but he had said that the Jets were going to win the game. Uh, the first week that the Jets were in Florida, he was famously on a chaise lounge, which where there's been a, a picture that's been widely, you know, distributed for oh, years. Iconic. And he said he said there to the media all around him, of course we're going to win this game. I didn't come here to lose. Well, but that's a professional attitude, Tim. You know, if you're a big-time college football player, much less a big-time professional player, you don't say I'm going to lose or that we'll see what happens. You know, you, you talk up, you know, hey, we're going to win. You know, I expect to win. I'm not here to lose. I'm, I'm here to win. Um, and um, so he, he kind of set the marker down right there. And then a week and a half later, you know, he put it out there really for everybody to see and hear. And even then it didn't get played up that much. It was in one newspaper in Miami the next morning. None of the New York papers had the story about him and his guarantee, even though Dave Anderson from the New York Times had been there. And he told me, I didn't even report it back to the Times because I heard Joe say several times over a week and a half, we're going to win. So I didn't think he said anything that was really any different from what he'd been saying for two weeks. Um, so Namath, from the perspective of the young players, had a greater impact with his guarantee because young players had no idea what to expect. The Jets had eight or nine rookies that year on the team um, or guys with very limited experience. He might have been drafted before but not really played very much. Um and when they heard Namath say, we're going to win, they said, wow, you know, maybe we are going to win because Joe says so. Why would Joe say this if he, if he didn't believe it? And so that was the impact he had on the team. Well, you made some allusions <clears throat> to, you know, the impact of this game. I, maybe we can just sort of circle back on that. Yeah. Sort of segue around the around third base here on this uh, slot, you know, uh, long ride home here. So to completely mix metaphors and sports. Um, the uh, immediate impact and the long-term impact of this victory, right? We kind of hinted right. at some of this, right? Um, New York, the sports world, uh, the Jets as a football team in New York, as well as the equivalents, perhaps, or the, you know, casting aside of doubts about the AFL's capability of playing in the newly merged NFL. What, what were Give us some of the impacts that you sort of, saw from this team, uh, you know, both near term and longer term? Well, let me give you the immediate aftermath. The Jets didn't have any champagne for their locker room. The Jets owners didn't think they were going to win the game. They went into the Baltimore locker room and took the champagne from the Colts. Um, 
New York did not have a ticker tape parade for the Jets. They had um, a welcome at Gracie Mansion for about, I think there were a dozen of them there. Namath was there. Matt Snell was there. Uh, they gave, you know, Namath like a key to the city and, you know, the players as well. So rather understated, to say the least. And, and uh, so that was an immediate thing. Now, more importantly, and this is the thing that I think a lot of young fans today uh, just don't understand because it's history and, it, and it's hard for somebody who wasn't around 50 years ago, no matter how big a football fan you are, to know what happened. But let me give you a couple of the highlights. The NFL had planned, assuming that the Jets were going to get slaughtered also, as in the first two games, they were going to basically integrate the AFL teams into the National Football League structure. And by that, I mean the Jets were going into the Giants division. The Raiders were going to go into the the San Francisco 49ers division. The Houston Orleans were going to go into the same division as the Dallas Cowboys, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. After the game, the AFL owners kind of got their, their backs up and they told the NFL, you know, we want to maintain our structure. We want to keep the 10 teams that we have and we want to stay together as a 10-team structure. And after scheduling was looked at very carefully because the AFL owners really now are looking forward to NFL teams coming to AFL cities to play against, you know, the local team. And it was going to be mean really big paydays, a lot of attendance that some of these teams were not accustomed to. And so um, I don't know if the fans realize it or not, but the Baltimore Colts went into what became the American Football Conference. They got paid $3 million to make the, the switch. Uh, and they made the switch because the Colts realized that they had built quite a rivalry now with the Jets. And they said, we'll make the move and take the money if we're in the Jets division. No problem. The Cleveland Browns moved uh, to the American Football Conference. Second time that they had actually made a move. They were in the All-American Football League in the late 40s. And they were one of three teams that moved from the AAFC into the NFL in 1950. And now, 20 years later, they made another move from the NFL into the American Football Conference. And the Pittsburgh Steelers were the third team that took the $3 million and went to the AFC. And they did it because their big rival was uh, Cleveland, and they wanted to be in the same division as Cleveland. And the big winner out of all of that was Pittsburgh, because they went on in the 1970s to be the most dominant team you know, in the NFL anywhere. There was a couple of other things that the Jet players told me, and it's really hard to uh, put your finger on it and say this definitely would have happened. But Jerry Philbin and Bob Talamini, two of the really veteran players on the Jets, told me that in the two weeks before the Super Bowl, the rumor that was running around the locker room was that the NFL, if the Jets got slaughtered, um, the NFL was not going to take all 10 of the AFL teams. They wanted to eliminate ideally, two of the really financially strapped teams um, from the AFL. Well, the two most financially strapped teams in 1969 were the Boston Patriots and the Denver Broncos. So imagine how NFL history would have changed if those two franchises had been dissolved, if they had paid off those owners to go away and those teams had not moved into the NFL. Where would Tom Brady be today? And where would John Elway have played his football all those years if there was no Denver franchise? Just a fascinating 
thing to conjure up. Uh, salaries went up pretty significantly after that game because CBS wanted to retain its contract with the NFL, and they did. NBC was determined to keep its contract uh, with the AFL. And for years, three or four years, Pete Rose all been trying to get one of the national TV networks to um, have a Monday night football game. And famously, he had gone to CBS and Bill Pelley, who was running CBS, said to him, let me get this straight. You want me to take Lucille Ball off the air Monday night so you can put a football game on? There's no way I'm going to do that. Well, after the Super Bowl, ABC really was, was intent. They were going to get into the football business. And so they agreed to pay and become Monday Night Football. And that's how Monday Night Football came to pass, because of Super Bowl three. And those are just some of the things that took place because the Jets pulled the greatest upset in Super Bowl history. All right, last question. Give me uh, give me a sense of, um, I, and it, it's amazing, and it's, it's a very interesting pivot uh, in history of, of this sport, right? Um, of the people that you talk to, uh, give, me, give me some flavor of some of the more, shall we say, unsung heroes maybe of this team, and maybe not just this, that year, but maybe some of the players that have been there for some time toiling away. Uh, in the shadow of Joe Namath. Uh, yeah, let me, um, I'm going to answer that question um, in two different ways. The first, the very first phone call that I made, and by the way, I was kind of naive. I figured I'm just going to call these players up and they'll talk to me. It didn't even occur to me, how am I going to find these guys? Well, I, we figured out a system to do that. So we started calling around. And the very first guy that I called, just by chance, was Curly Johnson's home. He was the punter. And in those days, back in the 60s, because there were only 40-man rosters, he was also the backup fullback, the backup tight end. Um, and he could also play quarterback. He was like the fourth quarterback. You couldn't have a specialist, a punter, a place kicker or whatever, who couldn't play other positions. So I called him up. His wife answered the phone. And I told him, told her who I was. I said, I'm a fan. I'm not a sports writer. I've been a fan since 1963. And I remember this about your husband. And I'd like to talk with him about his Jets career and about the Super Bowl. Now, I didn't know, but I found out immediately that Curly Johnson, and this is three years ago, four years ago, had a very bad case of CTE. And um, he'd been afflicted with it when he was 60, and he was now close to 80. And he really, he could, he could hear, but he couldn't really talk very well anymore. And she said, no problem, I'll tell you all the stories. But before she started to tell me the stories... She covered the mouthpiece on the telephone, and she said, Bob, just give me a second. And I heard her distinctly say, hey, Curly, you won't believe this, but there's a guy on the phone who wants to talk to you about the Super Bowl. And she told me that Curly Johnson had been waiting 47 or 48 years for anybody to ask him what happened that day and that year. And although I never heard that directly from any other player, the inference was there, like, what, you want to talk to me? You don't want to talk to Joe? You want to talk to me? And that was the whole intent of my book, to talk to them. Unsung heroes. Um, there were so many terrific players on that team. I, I, My wife told me I was having too much fun talking to these guys, and it's probably true. Uh, Jerry Philbin, who was one of my two favorite players, Emerson Boozer was the other. And ironically, both of them were probably the two toughest guys to get to talk to me because they both immediately hit me with 
the thought that they had told their stories so many times over the years that they didn't really think there was anything new. And I said to both of them individually, let me tell you what I want to talk to you about that I remember about your career. I'll bet you've never been asked about it, or you certainly haven't been asked about it in 40 or 50 years. And when I laid it on each one of them, their, their reactions were, okay, you got me. When do you want to talk? Um, Pete Lamons, the tight end, has become a very good friend. Um, he's hilarious. Uh, my running line with him is, I will call up, Pete will answer the phone, and I'll say, hi, can I speak to the greatest tight end in Jets history? And Pete Lamons will, will not hesitate and say, hold on, let me see if he's here. He, he's, a, he's a delight to talk to. Larry Grantham, who died last year, uh, basically taught me about what defense is really all about in pro football. He and I would talk almost on a weekly basis, uh, often on you know the day after the Jets would play, and he would tell me what he thought about the game and what he saw that the Jets were doing right and doing wrong. Uh, Paul Rochester, who was like the unsung defensive tackle on that team, he was the run stopper. Not, not much of a pass rusher. He was the run stopper. Uh, great sense of humor. Um, very glib. Very hard of hearing, uh, but told me great stories. Um, Matt Snell, who hasn't really talked to the media in 40-something years, spent more time talking to me than any other player on the team. And in fact, the book even reveals why Matt Snell has not been talking to the Jets for like 47 years. And he's never told anybody that. It came as kind of a surprise to me that he was willing to talk about it. And he brought it up to me. I didn't bring it up to him. He wanted to, you know, tell somebody and let it out. And I was, you know, very honored that he chose me to do that. So, those are some of the guys that really, you know, left a big impression on me. Billy Baird was another one. He was a free safety. He was very undersized, very underweight. He was about six feet and 185 pounds, um, but smart as a whip. He understood the defense and just were trying to play, and he knew, you know, what position he needed to be in on the field on every play, and he was always there. So he always made tackles, and he would break up a lot of passes, very unsung. Not never going to make an all-star team, but a heck of a football player. All right, here's your chance to promote. Uh, tell us the book, the name, or the uh, the uh, the publisher, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, where are you going to be promoting it? You're going to sign some books. What? Okay. Well, the book is called Beyond Broadway Joe: The Super Bowl Team That Changed Football. It is published by Harper Collins. You can certainly get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble. Um, I know, you know, where I live here in Skokie, Illinois. They have copies on the shelves at Barnes & Noble because I went over and told them, you need to have some books on the shelf because I'm the author, and they do. Um, but probably the best way is to order it online. Um, uh, I think it's $18.20 on Amazon right now, um, marked down 30%. I, it's, it's about a 400-page book, but it's a very easy read. The reviews uh, by, by professional book critics have been very good. The fans... Uh, on Facebook and such that I interact with have given it really tremendous thumbs up. The players love the book because it, it really presents their side of the story that's never been shown before. And when I met the players' wives several weeks ago, they liked it even more. 
And I'll tell you one one funny story. At least it was funny to me. I hope you'll find it funny. Uh, as I was saying my goodbyes to the players after spending a good part of the weekend with them, one guy, his name is Carl McAdams, and he was a much hurt linebacker and defensive lineman on that team, but a wonderful guy, lives in Oklahoma, and he's a cattle farmer. And he said, Bob, I can't thank you enough. You were so kind to me in the book, and I never thought of myself as that kind of a player because I was hurt all the time and this and that. Can I do anything? anything for you. And I said to him, Carl, you raise cattle? He said, yeah. I said, name your next calf, Bob. And he said, you got it. No, no greater tribute. It, it, to me, there is no greater tribute. Just as long as it doesn't come back as a box of steaks. <laughs> Bob, I told you. my rabbi, I told my rabbi, maybe we'll get a kosher one. Who knows? <laughs> Thank you to Bob for a uh, interesting conversation. Those jets, uh, you know, uh, I know it's a painful topic, right? Especially as we, uh, as we're recording this in early November, we're about two months away from uh, what should be remembered uh, lovingly uh, as a great anniversary, the 50th anniversary of that uh, amazing New York Jets uh, Super Bowl three championship. And um, as you heard in, uh, in our chat sort of near the end, uh, you know, the uh, the topic of, of how this team from 69, or actually the team of 68 and the, the championship won in early 1969, uh, you know, is uh, it's a it's somewhat sore topic, I guess, frankly, of uh, of the Jets organization, the Jets team uh, and the fans that uh, may remember uh, back in the day, because uh, undoubtedly it is a hallmark or the hallmark of the Jets uh, franchise history. Yet it also, uh, in a strange way, kind of reminds people that um, not a whole lot of good, uh, certainly not championship things have happened to the team since that time. Uh, and, um, you know, I, you know, as a, as a long suffering, uh, not every year though, New York Giants fan growing up, uh, it's a curiosity to me, uh, how's the, how the Jets have, uh, you know, uh, you know, stuck around in, uh, in New York City sports consciousness. Uh, I think there is still that sort of uh, shadow of the Giants, right? Of course, now they're they're both playing in the, in the same stadium over at uh, in the East Rutherford at, at MetLife Stadium, which is a continuation of what was uh, the past Giant Stadium prior, and and the Jets being sort of the secondary tenant of that as well. You know, so I, I think you know, you're a New York Jets fan. There is a it's a bittersweet sort of uh, discussion and memory about. Uh, 1968, 1969, uh, especially uh, in relation to uh, the team and what it's become or what it hasn't become in the years since. So anyway, it's, it's, it's a great conversation. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. And the book, of course, is called Beyond Broadway Joe, the Super Bowl team that changed football. The uh, author, of course, is Bob Letterer, our guest. It is published by uh, Day Street, which is an imprint of, uh, is it William Morrow? Yes, William Morrow is the uh, major imprint of that. Uh, you can find that wherever books are found, of course. Uh, but we encourage you to do uh, from our website, if you don't mind, because we'll get a couple of shekels when you do that. And that's, of course, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Just search up this episode. I think it's number 88. Uh, and you will find uh, all kinds of interesting stuff related to the show, some sh show notes, some uh, some Jets items that might be of interest to you as well, as well as a click away to uh, this book uh, as well. So feel free, please, to visit there early and often. Click through, buy the book that way, and uh, we would uh, appreciate it tremendously. And uh, we also appreciate 
uh, every time you come on our website to uh, tool around. Why don't you? There's all the old episodes there. Uh, you can find all of our social media uh, links and feeds there. That's uh, things like Twitter, for example. You can find us at Good Seats Still. You can follow us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find the link to our Facebook page. Uh, which a good, healthy handful of you uh, weigh in with, uh, with your favorite episodes and, rem and memories. We appreciate that. Uh, you can sign up for our newsletter. We send that out every weekend to remind you that uh, a new great episode is coming your way. And uh, please, by all means, but after either before, during, or after your visit to GoodSeedStillAvailable.com, uh, please rate and review us if you can. Uh, it uh, only takes a couple of seconds, and it really helps our algorithm out there and other people to find this show. Uh, and you can share the love that way. It's the probably the least expensive way to do so besides listening. And that's on Apple iTunes or podcasts, wherever you listen and have the opportunity to rate or review. By all means, please do that. And you could also, by the way, at our website, send us email. That's a good way to contact us. But also you can send that to us directly at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. That'll get to us as well. Uh, let's see. Podcasting is um, fun. It's daunting. It's a lot of work. But our friends... Uh, at Podfly Productions are really helpful in getting us going and uh, on the air every week. And we appreciate them and our good friend Jerry Payne, uh, who uh, puts all of our collective pieces together to make us sound somewhat smooth and interesting. Uh, and uh, if you want to find out more about Jerry and Podfly Productions, perhaps you're considering your own podcasting uh uh, interests and want to learn a little bit more or perhaps get some production help, by all means, I recommend highly our friends at Podfly. You can find them at podfly.net. All right. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate uh, to no end your listenership. And uh, we'll uh, talk to you next week, we hope, with another great episode. Take care. And until then, ta-ta. Ta-ta.